We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. But I think what's missing in the restaurant review world, and I don't see it coming back, which is a shame, at least for me, is treating restaurants as you would treat any other art form, whether it's dance or um, visual art or literature. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. A writer, editor, illustrator, cookbook author, children's book author, and a really fun guy to get to know, Joshua Davis Stein really has all the goods. In this truly epic episode, we cover Joshua's long and interesting career, from the early days of Gawker and the New York Observer, to writing cookbooks with Kwame Nwache, Wilson Tang, and Joe Campanelli, to name a few. We talk about why writing about restaurants is such a compelling act of cultural anthropology, and why writing cookbooks was a natural progression for Joshua. This is an amazing talk with one of my favorite voices in food media. Joshua David Stein, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Mm, thank you, Matt. Oh, man, it's good to see you. <laughs> it's been uh, a few months or longer than it's Longer. Been. Longer. Last time we talked was outside East One Coffee. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And uh, I was about to buy a Subaru. And I think you had already <laughs> bought one. I bought one. We were, were talking about Subaru life. You bought one off a guy in a key food parking lot? That's right, off McGinnis Boulevard. Yeah. How's it go- how is the Subaru? Uh, well, her name's Kimberly. Yeah, right. <laughs> and she is extremely rusty, but trusty. Rusty and trusty is what you need for a New York City car. Yeah. But I, let's get into your career. I mean, I, I, from a jump, I, I think when looking at your career and what you've done, uh, and I've known you for a long time, you've written for taste, but I've also just like professionally known you. It's such a cool mix. Like it's such a unique mix of editing, writing, illustrating, restaurant reviewing, and of course, cookbooks. And you've, you've written several but first, I don't know this about you. I've never asked you. Um, how did you get into food writing? Did you have a first job? Were you doing something else and then end up in food writing? Um, well, we all have a first job. It's true. Um, I, The way I got into writing about food is tied to... I used to live in East... I used to live in Williamsburg off Graham Ave. I lived across the street from this guy, David Haskell, who went on to become the David Haskell. Yeah, right. I was going to say the David Haskell, New York, New York Magazine editor-in-chief. Sure, but then he yeah. was my neighbor. Yeah. And he had a magazine at the time called Topic. It was him and a bunch of other Yale, I think, Yale kids. Anyway, I lived across the street. He was really nice. We started, you know, we were friendly, and he knew I was into writing, but not professionally. At the time, I wanted to be a dancer. Um, and so I started writing for Topic. And through that job, I feel like I knew, I got to know a key group of people mm-hmm. in media that I, that are still au courant, mm-hmm. um, including Nick Denton, who... <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. Well, the curse Nick Denton. <laughs> I, I love Nick. Um, Very few people do. I, I do, actually. No, great. Um, but... Nick tried to hire me because he thought I was gay 
Nick and Lockhart, Lockhart mm-hmm. Steel, tried to hire me for a gay website. Mm-hmm. I think it was called gay.com or something. Yeah. And it was like one of my, it was the first job offer in writing I'd ever, or in journalism I'd ever gotten. And I was like, sure. <laughs> one question, does it matter that I'm straight? And they both looked so crestfallen and oh. they were like, eh, kind of. <laughs> um, but almost as a make good, at the time, Gawker owned a travel website called Gridskipper, yeah. uh, run by this guy Chris Money, who brought me on to be a contributor. At some point, I moved to Paris, so I was mm-hmm. writing about uh, Paris. Early city guide internet, I would yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there was like City Search, which was kind of like wan and flabby, but it, like I think Gridskipper was cool. Like, it was taut. It was taut and edgy. Yeah, taut and edgy. Um, <laughs> anyway. I ended up coming back to New York, running Gridskipper, and then got brought on over to Gawker as something called the After Hours Editor, <laughs> which didn't mean that I worked after hours, although I also worked after hours, mm-hmm. but that I wrote about bars, nightlife, and restaurants. So that's kind of how I got into writing about food, was writing about restaurants, yeah. which sort of aligned with what I had studied in a way at NYU, which was ethnomusicology which is a sociological study of music, Mm -hmm. because I wasn't writing about food per se. I was writing about food in society or the social aspects of food. And that's always been something that I've been interested in. And as you noted, my career has been a little bit peripatetic, and I've done lots of writing in other areas. But this world of restaurants has always Mm -hmm. really interested me. And then that kind of shifted into cookbooks. Yeah. So you you had a a lot of, uh, like, freelance gigs in, like, New York City-centric media, right? Like The Observer you're writing a lot for. And you were part of Gawker 1.0. But, like, Gawker 1.0... Because by the time I was at Gawker, like, Spears had already gone... So they'd already done a – and, like, Krukoff was another yeah. previous editor. Names of the past. Yeah. Names of the past. And, and so – but I, I don't think of uh, Gawker, especially that early – those early days of, of writing about food. But, like, take take us back to one one Gawker food story that you worked on that you, that you feel was emblematic of the time. The two things that jump out are we were at, – at the time, just as context, Gawker, which I'm sure – a dozen people who are listening to this know, but most people don't know. Tens. Tens, Tens. yeah. Ten. <laughs> um, well, just to give a little, this is off topic, but just very quickly, Gawker started off as a Manhattan media website. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, it transitioned to a much larger purview, non-Manhattan-centric. And then, of course, with Peter Thiel, it kind of imploded, and now it's in some remnant zombie form uh, with Bustle Media. Um, Ouch. Well, it is what it is. Okay. So when I was at Gawker, it was still very media, Manhattan media-centric. And we, very local, we were, our offices were up the street from Balthazar. And we were obsessed with Balthazar and would write about it all the time, write about new pastries. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, with this, like, breathless enthusiasm, which was totally Which is, like, Lockhart Steele's model for Eater. Yeah. It was, like, like, that whole idea of Swarm the Gap, like, it's going to be taught in journalism schools in history. Like, the idea that you cover a topic with, like, 
such passion, but you do it in like the way that like you're like self aware of how ridiculous yes. your interest is. It's a very internet like t- early two thousands thing. Um, being middle aged now, <laughs> I wonder is that still happening or no. not so much? It's not because this is great. It's like we're getting into like some real media history here. I, I personally don't think so. I, I feel like uh, because of the the blog being sort of phased out of our consumption, you're getting it from video, and you're not like it's not fun to like read breathless coverage of a topic because reading is hard, mm. and not reading like it's video easier. is easier. So, easier. Yeah, <laughs> so that's my opinion. I feel like you have to be omnivorous with your coverage, and you can't just do that. Like we're gonna sit down and cover like themed weeks on the internet. Yeah, are kind of dead. Like no one cares about a themed week. Infrastructure week. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You're right. Exactly. Biden. So let's get back and talk about Trump. your. I want to like focus back on the restaurant criticism sure. you've done because I feel like the restaurant criticism piece of your career is really great. Like I love reading your reviews. And you write for the you wrote for the Observer, but you also are working with Esquire, and you help them with other editors put together their lists. Um, so, but but back to restaurant reviews. How, why do you like the review so much? What, what what's up with the form? Well, a couple of things. I, I was a restaurant critic for the New York Observer. I quit. Um, kind of, what's the word? Um, Spectacularly? Self-satisfied. Okay. <laughs> Performatively, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> spectacularly <laughs> when they endorsed Trump. Um, I was then the restaurant critic for The Village Voice, which was a total thrill. Yeah. I had a column called The Trencher Man. Um, now I'm the restaurant critic for Avenue, and as you note, I help put together the best new restaurant and best bar, li- best bar list for Esquire. So... I always felt that restaurants are an art form. And it goes back, honestly, to um, the ethnomusicology and the early days of Gawker. Restaurant reviews are service in one sense. Should I go? Should I not go? What should I order? But I think what's missing in the restaurant review world, and I don't see it coming back, which is a shame, at least for me, is... Treating restaurants as you would treat any other art form, whether it's dance or um, visual art or literature. So I've always tried to write restaurant reviews, which are the restaurant equivalent of literary criticism. Mm. And as a critic and as a writer and as a human being, I find it very rewarding and challenging because my approach isn't to approach the restaurant at a right angle with my notions of what it should be and what I like and what I don't like, but to really travel side by side in a more parallel way to see what the restaurateur or the chef is trying to do, to understand their intention, and then to evaluate how well the execution matches with the intention. That's one part of it. And then you know, the other part of it is where that fits in. And this is a little more my own thoughts, where that fits in into a larger context, um, almost in a moral sense. I always mm. felt, you know, I started my career even before Gawker, I think, as an intern at Harper's and um, I have a very strong interest in 
politics and and critiques of capitalism mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, that is very hard to get anyone to read who doesn't already want to read it. But I feel like you can obliquely mention, but certainly with some impact, all sorts of other issues tucked within a restaurant review because people are going to look at a restaurant review regardless of political affiliation. Absolutely. It's pure service journalism in, as a topic, right? right. As, a, as a subject. So if you can sneak in there, yeah. labor economics, uh, gentrification, rent, you know, all of these things, which also happen to play a big part in restaurants as culture. Yeah, it's in context. And it is a, an ultimate Trojan horse to talk about all these topics that maybe aren't um, as populist as, uh, you know, as others. And I, I want to go back to your point, which is great, about um, covering the chef's intention. Because I think that actually can be extended to the te- the, the chef's background, right? The, the the origins of the chef, like the the, the, eth- the ethnicity. And I think you talk about ethnography and musicology as your background. And have you been... You, have you been reassured or excited about food writing in the past, like, half decade in terms of the way ethnography has really kind of naturally flowed into a lot more of food writing than previously, which was kind of covering a um, more narrow focus? And then when, you know, the non-white point of view was covered, it was often done in a token, tokenized way, which has been written about a lot. Are you optimistic, I guess my question is? I've not been overly excited about the food writing the last five years. I am excited for the future. I am a white cisgendered man saying this. I'm aware of that. I have found a lot of food writing in the past five years. The subject matter I I I resonate with and I'm excited for the multiplicity multiplicity and diversity of voices. I think a lot of food writing has become sort of didactic and pedantic and fine, fine, that's fine. (laughs) It's not a pleasure to read. Maybe it's not supposed to be a pleasure to read. But I also feel like a lot of it from both the writing perspective and the editorial perspective has become performative. And in many cases, a sort of release valve to um, deter any more systemic changes because, oh, we have this article in this magazine or, or this cookbook or whatever. So the performativity, I think, is, is problematic, certainly for me. Um, and I don't think it does a service to anyone. Josh Zerski, let's talk about him yeah. because you wrote with him at the New York Observer, right? Mm, not quite. Well, you you would write like point counterpoints, yes. which to me um, were a real pleasure to read. I, I, I thought that you both had a real connection and you disagreed on a lot of stuff. But I, I rarely do talk about him on the show, but he is a long, uh, longstanding food writer and, and passed years ago unfortunately, early in his life. But I, I just wanted to get your t- your kind of experience of working with him. Well, I have a lot of thoughts about Josh Wazerski. Yeah. Um, he was he was a, the restaurant guy at Esquire. He was. Yep. And he was a yep. food guy at Time. And his peak of popularity was when I think I was a senior editor at Eater or I was writing for Eater a lot and... Mm-hmm. 
I would say personally and professionally, there I had a lot of problems with um, him. I think he did some, he wrote, he did not behave in the most upright way possible when he was writing for Time magazine. Absolutely not. Um, Absolutely not. In terms of journalistic integrity. No. And I called him out on it as he should have been called out on, you know? He was self-serving in that way and grandiose. So I was very high horsey about it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And the the New York Observer pieces you're talking about, it was Josh versus versus Joshua. I'm Joshua. He's Josh. Mm-hmm. This woman Faye Penn, who's my editor, knew Josh, knew me, and so we did this end of the year roundup. Uh, I used to box and do Muay Thai, and now I do jujitsu. And one of the things in combat sports is okay, training is training, but if you're gonna actually fight. Don't take it easy on the other person, and don't have them take it easy on you. If it's a, if it's a uh, sort of antag- adversarial situation, the logic of that piece or that situation is you go as hard as you can, and the other person goes as hard mm-hmm. as you can. And if someone ever in the ring or whatever took it easy on me, I would feel disrespected. So that piece with those pieces with Joshua Josh were really funny because I definitely went balls to the wall like <laughs> and antagonistic they were funny they were great but that's the yeah. that's the piece you know that's the the logic of that piece mm-hmm. and Josh didn't and I think when I would oh. run into him he would say why are you why are you so mean why are you this way and it's like well dude yeah. this is the piece and then he died, and I felt that was a very unresolved relationship in my life. And I, uh, people heaped praise on him when he passed. And I felt just like I did when I was doing the Josh versus Joshua thing. It's more disrespectful to him if I and first of all, no one's asking me. But like, if I, I asked you. Oh yeah, you did. So technically, yes, you've been asked. But at the time, it was more disrespectful to him for me to gloss over the fact that we had these disagreements, and I I don't know if he would see us as antagonistic, but I certainly did. And there were parts of his professional life and uh, conduct which I really did not respect and do not respect. And yet when I saw him, it was pleasant, but there was deep pathos there. Yeah. Um, and it's still something that I think about because it's still unresolved. And, you know, as we get older and um, I've had other people pass away in my life who I've not been on great terms with, other bosses. And mm-hmm. um, how do you respect the dead? Do you respect them by... Sugarcoating, sugarcoating, right. or do you or, or, on one side do you respect them by griping, which also doesn't seem right, mm-hmm. 
or is there some way in between? Yeah. I think with Josh, I realize there's some way in between. Complicated figure. I thank you for sharing the, that your your thoughts on him. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I did not stand behind a lot of this, especially at time, some of the work he was doing, which felt really con- contradictory to, to the word journalist, which often was thrown around for him and, and others in our field. Um I think in terms of the scholarship that came out of his uh, his life, like some of the topics he covered deep, I think that it, it should be remembered. He, should, he was definitely um, a bon vivant and had a great sense of uh, voice with his writing. Yeah. I think, you know, his his ability to write his skills, his like raw skills as a writer were, were profound. Yeah. Um, a real stylist. Like like yourself, I wanted to have you on because I think you're a true stylist like, like Josh uh, as well. And... You know, we we don't need to go too deep with Ozersky, but I I do thank you for bringing that topic, and I think future generations will will read his work with um you know a variety of emotions. Let's I mean, talk- let's just do you think future generations? I don't know if future generations are going to read his work. See, I disagree. I would like them. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I I, I want, it's not that I don't want them to, but like, where is it enshrouded? I guess is like where, like even I, right today, if I wanted to go back and read Josh Ozersky, I don't know where I would do it. Right. Good question. I think the early food internet will be studied. I think that the way our culture and foodism, the way it really just exploded through the internet will be studied. Mm. That That is a topic that is rich and it is important. And I think the work we do here at Taste and on the podcast is part of remembering the early food media. I think food media is a topic we, we touch on here. We talked to a lot of cookbook authors and journalists. Um, to answer your question about how do we read Josh, it's a great one because you read – like he started Grub Street. Like he was like one of the first editors, if not the first editor of Grub Street. And so, yeah, that stuff is not worth reading. Like it's – some of it is extremely – pithy and and not not great but i do think you read some of his longer essays um if we can dig out some of his um he had that blog that he did later on after grub street i can't remember the name of it the feedback yeah feedback like stuff like that and i i feel i just i'm not making a qualitative judgment by the way i'm just wondering you know i think if you go back this is what i think like let's take time for instance Time has shifted hands so many mm-hmm. mm, on so many occasions. <laughs> word wrap. Time has shifted hands on so many occasions <laughs> that I wonder if those pieces are still extant anywhere. Yeah. And same thing with Grub Street. It's like I think it, this is another symptom, sort of, of early internet being a journalist in the early mm-hmm. aughts. Like every time C- CMS changes all the time. Every time CMS changes. Some portion of that work goes away, and who knows if it will ever be back. So I'm not saying that Josh doesn't deserve to be read by future generations. I think everything you said is true. I just have a legitimate, it's not even a concern, but question as to whether that will be saved for posterity in any way. I, I think that if you ask anyone at Grub Street, maybe Alan, probably Alan Mm -hmm. knows. He's held the keys for a while. Yeah. But... Ask anyone else, who's Josh Ozersky? No idea. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's why I bring it up. I, I, and I, I think in terms of technology, I, I think we will find a way 
to to read an archive of early internet. I, I think it's not gone forever. It's yeah. there's there is cached content. And my, my thought is like microfiche was there for a reason and we still look at microfiche researchers, academics. Yeah, is it gonna be a big story about Josh or, or anyone in the early internet? No, it's not gonna be like a massive pop thing, but I think there will be people who read it and maybe listen to this taste podcast in a hundred years. So shout out to you in a hundred years <laughs> if you're digging into our archive. I do want to get to cookbooks because I really wanted to have you in on the Taste Podcast and just talk to you about your career as a cookbook collaborator and author on your own right. You've worked on many cookbooks, Namwa, Where Chefs Eat, Il Buco, Vino. You've worked with uh, Kwame Unwachi on his two books um, and future books potentially. So like this is a very, very like vast amount of topics that you're covering, a vast – I think you're an omnivore with 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 these topics, but you go deep with all these topics. How do you pick your cookbooks to work on? Anyone who asks me, <laughs> I love it. Truth, truthful answer. Um, I love it. Thank you. I think for I'm with you <laughs> for a long time, it's been that way. Now I have enough enough projects that I'm uh, I choose, but I I think I would have chosen any of the cookbooks that I've worked on thus far anyway. I think about I think about cookbooks the way I try to approach restaurant reviews or anything. I'm not coming at it on a right angle, but to walk beside it or beside the subject or beside the co-author and and understand. And that leads to so much more nuance and um, less of a reaction. You know, it's not like this is interesting, this isn't interesting. It's just like I'm just here and soaking it in. And then kind of if I choose to work on it, then sort of shaping it, you know. I really, really value being able to work on a broad range of topics. That is, um, in some ways, I'm my constitution is that of a person, a book person, I get very into a subject and understand it and fully inhabit it and fully inhabit a community of people and whatever that world is. And then after about two years, I sort of move on. I'm not someone that holds on to much at all. So when I was writing freelance uh, like pieces, it's a little bit too short for me. You know, it's like you're in maybe a week, two weeks, maybe a month, and then you're out. When I was working in an office doing a long, you know, like an open-ended gig, I I don't like the day-to-day. I don't like the politics. I don't like that there's no project. It's not a project-based yeah. empl- sort, type of employment. A cookbook is wonderful because you have this huge project that you're working on that you're sort of creating and birthing with another person a team of people actually and then it's out and then you move on you know it's an exercise for me in letting go you know you you do this and then you let go it's such a well said point because i think uh having written long form and books myself there is a bit of a death sometimes feeling with an article when you love the topic so much and you're like you've embedded or traveled or even just done a bunch of phone interviews 
you're when you do 2,000 words, you're done, and it feels like a loss. But the book, yeah, I agree. Two years, three years with promotion, it's like a, enough usually. <laughs> it's enough on that topic. And then I'm with you because I'm an editor like you, and I like a lot of things, and I, I sometimes just need to move on to new things. Yeah. Um, but is there a book that you – is there a topic you've covered that you feel like you can be in it for the long haul? Do you feel like – with Kwame or Namwa even. I mean, I'm just naming a few just off your resume. I, I don't know your answer, but was there a book that you've worked on that you felt like this really speaks to me deeply? Or is it the opposite, what you just said? You like to move on and you don't hold on to much. I would work with all of the collaborators with whom I've worked again. I think there's not an idea that is right there on the table that's unexplored. Like we would have to work. I'm, I guess I'm speaking mostly about Kwame. Yeah. Um, because we did the memoir, and then we just the cookbook just came out, and I think that's a very nice evolution, um, in terms of projects. And there's not clearly what the third book would be, but I I really I really enjoy working with Kwame. Yeah, let's um, let's hear a little bit about Kwame because I I think you know I just saw him to host the James Beard Awards in Chicago last week. He was incredible. Like, yeah. what an incredible human being, just presenter. Like, I, I did not like. Usually they bring up a writer and it's awkward, but the guy like owned the stage. It was amazing to watch him work in that respect. And then of course his writing with you, your writing, the two of you, our writing. Yeah, let's say our writing from your point of view. I feel like that is it's special. It's 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 hopefully going to live on for a long time in in many forms. So how did you hook up with? Him and what's that? In this very building. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, I guess, whenever Notes from a Young Black Chef started to percolate, um, Lexi Bloom, who's an editor yeah. at Knopf, brought Shout out me to in. Lexi, yeah. And another shout out to Tom Pold, who's yeah. our editor. And I came in to meet with Kwame, who had a germ of an idea of a, of a book. It was called Chasing Happiness at the time. And this was before his restaurant, Charles Bijou, opened, which was his short-lived fine dining restaurant in D.C. And it was a very um, linear story. Just not It's not rags to riches, because he, he wasn't quite riches and he wasn't quite rags, but it was an upward trajectory. And uh, he met with me, and they met with a bunch of other writers. And I think because, you know, when I was, just to back up, when I was at Eater, I think we overlapped there. I did interrogations, which was the best dad joke pun, <laughs> even though I didn't have kids at the time, where I would just interview chefs for hours, and it was very freeform and kind of wonderful. I, I was reading them the other day, and like, I have a lot of time with these chefs. But you know, by the time I met Kwame, I wasn't impressed with him as a chef. I just related to him as a person, and I think that... I, well, I hope that he, he appreciated that. And we just had a very good rapport. And that working on that process, working on that memoir, Notes from a Young Black Chef, was, you know, I spent a lot of time in D.C. I was with him when Shaw Bijou opened. I was with him when Shaw Bijou closed. Blew up, essentially. Yeah, yeah after tough. three months. Yeah. And even uh, though he's a friend and I felt, you know, really rotten for him that it, it didn't go well. As a writer, it w made such a m much more interesting story, a nuanced story. Mm -hmm. um, so Kwame is someone, I think, who 
naturally, as you might not either, trust me initially to help tell his story because I was the stranger. But I think through the process of notes, we became, I would say it's like we have a word baby. It's, you know, it's his story. It's his life and his story. And I am shaping it for the page. Yeah. Let's get into the craft of it because I, I think it's interesting. How do you work on a memoir? I mean, cookbooks are a little different and they're more technical. You're working on head notes and recipe writing and, and directions and, of course, all the, the writing that goes around it. But with a memoir, it's all just – it's the story. How do you collaborate on a memoir? I mean, is it a lot of interviewing and recording? Is it – um, another form, are you swapping Word docs, Google docs back and forth? No. Kwame, I think, is a verbal person more than a written word person. So we did a lot of interviews. I did a lot of secondary interviews with his mom and with his friends, and I just shadowed him for a while. The challenge with Kwame writing a memoir is he can tell you these amazing anecdotes and these stories. But when you're writing, I think there's a certain level of introspection and going deep and kind of you don't, in my mind, you don't want to present the story. You want to tell the story. When you're in person or on camera, you're more presenting, you're more performative. But when you're writing, it's more intimate and you want to be telling the story like you are um, talking to a friend. Not a very good friend, not someone that you're putting on any acts for. So I think to get that balance was I, I used his story um, and kind of and, and, and secondary reporting and a lot of research to bring down the temperature of the presentation and go deeper so it, it felt resonant. Cool, cool words. I think that's that's probably the same sentiment for a lot of uh, biographers or, or sorry, memoir uh, collaborators or ghostwriters um, or credited yeah, collaborators. It, yeah, his smart. His that book was kind of easy in a way, and the 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 story was there. So I just didn't need. I di- didn't have to come up with a story. I just followed. It was spectacular enough. Mm-hmm. It was actually more about mm, taking the shine off. And 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 deepening. What's the update on the Hollywood adaptation of the of the book? No idea. Yeah, I'm sure we'll read about it in Deadline one day, and it'll appear on a streamer, and we'll all watch it and love it. Yes, <laughs> I wonder if I will see my name on the screen for the agents to decide. Yes, but let's. I, I want to hear about what you're working on going forward with cookbooks because I really do respect your work and your choices. You make great choices with books. I feel like you're self-deprecating, so you'll you'll do anything that they'll call you for because that's probably not the case. But what are you working on? Wait, just to be clear, I don't know who listens to this podcast. I think a few people. I mean, we've actually, we have a lot of listeners. The, thank you, listeners, for sticking with us. A lot, a lot of listeners. I mean, I don't – yeah, I know a lot of people <laughs> listen. I don't know what the – <laughs> their their level of experiences. I wanted to say that, like, just to be clear, it's. I honestly mean anyone who asked me to do a project, I would do it for a long time. I have two kids. You know, yeah. I live in New York City, and writing cookbooks, being a writer is really hard. Yeah. So I just wanted to, just to be real, I'm not being hyperbolic or... Um, cute about it, yeah. Cute. It's yeah. like, 
Yeah, I hustle. And the reason I hustle is because for a long part of my career writing cookbooks, um, and even now, you know, I couldn't do one book. Some people can do one book a year and they're getting a big enough advance and that's how it works for them. For me as a co-author, I had to do three or four. I needed to be working on three or four books at a time as well as doing freelance stuff. So I'm always very careful when I'm doing interviews or anything like that to be very clear that it's financially yeah. quite difficult. Um, just as you know, as living in as someone in New York, it's like something that I find so difficult is this is a little bit off topic, but not really. It's like, you know, at my kid's school, he goes to school with these kids and then their parents have brownstones and mm-hmm. newer Subarus and second mm-hmm. houses and yeah. And daycare, and you just feel so shitty because you're like, well, I'm busting my ass and I have none of that stuff. Only later you find out, of course, that their parents help them or whatever. They have. And I think so the more that you can be open about the financial side of things, that I am successful. I'm very successful. Mm-hmm. I still struggle. Like, that's just how it is. So yep. I don't want it to seem like um, – <laughs> that I've got it made, you know. No, I'm very fortunate. I'm very, I'm, I'm very privileged. I'm very, I'm happy. But that's the truth. No, thank you for say, saying that out loud because it is important to talk about the economics of food writing. It, it is a really tough, tough place to hack it economically. No matter where you live, especially in cities like New York or LA or big cities where rents are going crazy or, or mortgages, etc. I, I, I have to acknowledge that. Um, I think part of my appeal of working with you is just the way you do hustle and you're just such a reliable writer. I just uh, – it's such a commodity and I – like in terms of an editor, like yeah. you're a, a real commodity. I mean really like, like hitting deadline and actually doing the work is part of what getting taste done every week is about and it's challenging. Yeah. So um, I wish we were in reality where it would be compensated better. I think we try to pay as much as we can here. Economics are challenging, though, with, with yeah. media. Media is a really tough business. It's not scalable. It's not – there's no, like, silver bullet to, like, make everyone super rich, like, certain industries. The other thing I think about food writing – and I didn't forget. I'll tell you what I'm working on. Yeah, right on. The other thing about food writing is especially when you're freelance, um, but even in, in, when you're not, it seems like people think that you get paid with the food. <laughs> and it's true. I eat and I one of the reasons I started writing about restaurants is because I can't afford to eat at the restaurants I want to eat at. So if I write about them, then I can either expense it or they're comped or whatever. So I have lived very well thanks to my profession. And at the same time, you can't pay rent, you can't pay health care, you can't pay child support on meals. And I think that it's the same um dynamic that happens in other sorts of service journalism Mm -hmm. like travel which i also do is that it's like you get paid an experience and it's true on some level you do but that is an amateur way of looking at it when you're a professional this is your job and you deserve to be compensated yeah cookbooks you're working on yeah what do you what are you up what are you up to okay so i just finished um and i think i can talk about it I'm sure I can talk about yeah. it. I don't know if I can talk about it. But sure, whatever. I was just going to say it. Uh, I finished the Stranger Things cookbook, which is with Sarah Malarkey at um, 
Random House. It's a Random House. I saw it on. A, I, I I've seen it. We we obviously work here, so we see advanced internal docs, and I yeah. saw that. Yeah, so I, I knew about that. Oh, but, great. <laughs> yeah, but it's internal. But anyways, it is. Uh, I don't know. Whatever. It's, we'll it's fine. You're. It's a wonderful project. It sounds really cool. It was my favorite <laughs> project that I've ever worked on. It was so imaginative, yeah. and Netflix had created this world which is so rich, and it kind of ticked every single box of what I wanted to do with a cookbook. And I worked with an amazing recipe developer named Susan Vu. Big shout out to her. I do think that recipe developers are like the unsung heroes of so many cookbooks. And she was a a real collaborator. I'm deeply grateful. Um, and And it's basically the it's a report on the dining habits of Hawkins residents <laughs> and i got to do everything i it's part of it's like an epistolary novel part of it is there's poetry i got to write um an ode i wrote a villanelle i don't know if the villanelle stayed in that's incredible um, so haiku. wow i mean this this seems like you really ran with the with the assignment i went so <laughs> so deep and it you know it's a i'm 40 i grew up i'm a child of the 80s yeah and my grandparents grew up in my grandparents lived in kokomo indiana which is this tiny town in indiana where i used to go all the time so i felt very connected to the material and I wrote it from the point of view of a sort of culinary historian, um, a, 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 almost like a, a sociological study of food, which is so much in my wheelhouse. Yeah, they gave uh, you word count. It sounds like they gave you a lot of words. I it's quite long. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, you wouldn't think this necessarily for like a crossover. Some of these these books are quite small format, but this seems really cool. And no, and, they um, I, th- I think. The the universe of Stranger Things is generally very well thought out. Yeah. And I'm, I, I felt very happy to do that. Then, as you know, because you helped put it together, I'm working with Mingu Kong, who's an amazing Korean chef at Mingles in Seoul, on a book with Artisan about Jong. Jong is fermented soybean paste, as, as you well know. Um, there's three types, uh, Ganjong, Denjong, and Gochujang. And I got back from Korea recently from a trip, a research trip there. That's a very di- that's a very challenging book, I think, because jong is not a household item here in in the states. Mingu is not a household name, and yet jong is such an important part of Korean cuisine. And Mingu is such a deeply knowledgeable person that uh, that book. That book deserves to be written. That needs to be in the world. Yeah, I, I just am so excited for that project, and and we will have you or Mingu or both of you back when that publishes because yeah. I, I really uh, think it is a needle thread that you're working on to, to get it right, and I know you will. I know you have, and Zhang is extremely important to Korean cuisine. It's yeah. the foundation, so amazing that you're working on that. Um, and actually, that book was interesting because – because I also I drew not so much on cookbooks, but on the food and beer book I did way back in the day with Daniel Burns and Yeppe um, from Evil Twin, and the Vino book because Jong is an agricultural product made from fermented soybeans, which can have terroir, which is aged like wine, but like beer, 
uh, can be made anywhere and doesn't rely on that much um, capital. So it's a very homegrown kind of thing. I'm doing the Russ and Daughters cookbook. Oh, my gosh. With Nikki and Josh. With Nikki, yeah. That's cool. That is a dream. Wow. Truly, truly, to be able to do the No Ma cookbook and the Russ and Daughters cookbook feels like I am contributing back to this city that I love so much. Yeah, it is your brand in, in a way, to use a corny term, but I think covering the history of New York and I think the Trencherman column that you wrote, you wrote about old restaurants, right? Yeah. And so like, it is part of your wheelhouse, absolutely. The Namwa cookbook, fantastic work. And then so with Russ and Daughters, I mean, like copied over and over and over around America. Yeah. So influential in the Jewish deli experience. What is this book going to be about? Uh, the Jewish appetizing experience. I'm sorry, that's true. It is the appetizing. I always mess that up. You're right. Um, good, good. You're on brand. And I'm sure Nikki made sure you said that. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, one of the things that I'll just say is, yes, it has the Russ and Daughters aesthetic has been copied over and over again in, in, in you're right, in neo-delis and in appetizings. Something that I think is true is that because Russ and Daughters is the sole really the sole survivor of, of that era, people conflate the Russ and Daughters aesthetic, which is individual to Russ and Daughters, with general appetizing aesthetic because it's the sole survivor. So it makes sense. It's like the only DNA code that there is. But part of this book is setting the record straight, is saying this isn't just generic appetizing. This is Russ and Daughters. So when you're opening your own appetizing in L.A. or whatever and you're using the black and white letters and the white coats, that's not appetizing you're copying. That's Russ and Daughters you're copying. So, so it's basically a legal document that you're setting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's, it's filled with affidavits yeah. and cease and desist. Exactly. Um, that's like the, the appendix is all the affidavits. <laughs> I think it's just time after 100 years, more than 100 years, for um, Russ and Daughters to put their stake in the ground. You know, Mark, Nikki's dad, had written a, more like a memoir and it's actually more about his family than about the the appetizing. And Russ and Daughters, I think, is interesting to me as well because they have maintained the brand and maintained that history and innovated in all of these ways and opened a bagel factory and opened other locations. But it, they, it all feels organic and it all feels true. Um, and Nikki and Josh are soul people to mm -hmm. me. Cool. Any other books? I mean, that's two. So yes, because um, I, 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 I want to get to your illustration, your your, your children's book work. Too, yeah, let's so. see. I am working on. Well, those are the two books that are sold. Right, and those are uh, so. Uh, Jong is with Artisan. Is Russ and Daughters? Who's that with? Macmillan. Macmillan. Okay. Macmillan, a sub mm. part of Macmillan. Okay. Called Flatiron. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then I'm working with a couple of other collaborators. Oh, wait, no, I am writing another book um, <laughs> with Tom Colicchio. <laughs> oh, s <laughs> um, heard of him. Yeah. Heard he, of him. That is a kind of longer running project with Artisan. And I, th I think it's going to be between a memoir and a cookbook, but really examining from his side why he's cooking ah. he ha and, and what he wants to do. 
he's taken these years of the pandemic to survey sort of his empire and do Top Chef. <laughs> and he's like, what do I want to be doing for the rest of my cooking career? Do I want to be in restaurants at all? Or run for Congress. Or run for Congress. I or feel that's what does he want? inevitable with that guy. He's going to run. Um, he might be too plain spoken. Interesting. Well, yeah, but he's got the Q score, I feel. People love Tom. Yeah. And that's important in yeah. politics, right? They love him. Um, let's talk about your your work in children's books. You 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 have written many. Um, I've I've purchased many for for children in my life. Yes, um, and they're wonderful. Um, can you. I eat that? What's cooking? Um, those are those are two of the books. But what you know? How did you get into that world briefly? And how uh, do you think about connecting food and like children's literature? Um, well, I got into it with Fiden which was my first publisher when I did Food and Beer. And they had just launched a children's list. <laughs> I was like, they want to do a children and beer book? Yeah, That's cool. I love that. That's great. <laughs> um, and at the time, I had a new Achilles, who's 10 now, was uh, young, younger then. And he would not eat. He was a very picky eater. And we had a lot of fights about it. But all the books that I could find were either didactic um, or, like, pure fantasy in Mm -hmm. the sense that the food was uh, anthropomorphized and not about eating. I mean, it's just – it was a little cute. It wasn't real. cute, cute, yeah. Cute, cute, cute. So it's either saying, like, you need to eat this broccoli or, like, Bernie the broccoli loves (laughs) summer camp. And, like, neither one of those worked. So I wanted to write Can I Eat That, which is my first book, to kind of incorporate wordplay. And it's like if I eat, I think, if I eat a potato and I eat a tomato, can I eat gelato? Yeah. (laughs) Which is like already kind of messing with you about how you pronounce it. Yeah. Because I wanted to write a book where we could talk about food, but it wasn't me telling him to eat something. And it wasn't me fantasizing about the food is just like, hey, maybe let me introduce you to some foods. Mm -hmm. And if you like it, great. And if you are curious, great. And if you just think this is a funny joke or like there's wordplay, also great. And but you'll remember those words down the road, which is great. You know what gelato is now. Yeah, exactly. But it's not direct. Right. You know, Um, it's like in in the periphery. Mm -hmm. So I did. Can I eat that? What's cooking? Then I wrote a book about. Um a brick who finds herself in architecture, which is also not about food. It's about architecture, but then the B level is about the bodhisattva path, which is a Buddhist idea of service. Um, and I've written many. The, the most recent one I wrote is called Solitary Animals, Introverts of the Wild. Shout out in this building to Cecily. Absolutely beautiful um, art. It's really wonderful. Beautiful, beautiful. Maria book. Elias is the art director here, yeah. and Dominique Ramsey is the illustrator. Um, and again, that book is about wildlife and what you call groups of animals, but really is about being an introvert. And that book was Written, I wrote that book because my younger son, Augie, um, is introverted, more introverted at the time that I wrote that. And every book that I read that I tried to find about friendship was about how wonderful it is to have friends and how important friends are and fr- whatever. And friends are great. I have, like, a few. Um, but what they didn't have is some a book saying, you know what, and if you don't have friends and if you're an introvert, 
That's also fine. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like when you when kids don't see them repre- themselves represented in books, that's really harmful, especially in around loneliness, because you already have the shame of feeling lonely, and then you have extra shame because it's not you don't see yourself anywhere. But knowing Augie, if I ever talk to him directly about loneliness or, or ask him whether he's lonely or what it, whatever, he would shut down. Yeah, it's so, like a shutdown moment for children to have, uh, yeah. you know, to have you be confronted with that. So you need to get an indirect way into the conversation. Exactly. And animals is a great way. Right. Solitary animals. It exactly. says it right there. Wonderful. Um, Love that. But I have a new book coming out, which I'm, I'm also very excited about, yeah. called Lunch from Home. Mm. Um, which I collaborated with four chefs, uh, Preeti Mystery, Ray Garcia, Nikki, uh, Fetterman Russ from Russ and Daughters, mm-hmm. and Mina Park from Baru in Los Angeles. And it is a story of four kids and their lunchbox moment. Yep. The lunchbox moment is uh, happens to many kids when they bring in a food from home, a lunch from home, and they're sort of shamed or or made to feel embarrassed about their food. So that book is coming out at some point. The illustrations are out of this world amazing. Yeah, those are amazing food professionals that you're working with. Yeah. And just um, getting the lunchbox moment, which we've written about a lot in, like, the adult food media world, to get that into, like, the children's lexicon. And yeah, that's I me think being the, very general. What is the, the theme? theme the, the story is it takes place over the, a week at, of school, and it's kind of um, the – it starts off with a certain number of kids with their foods – um, like uh, Preeti has Dokla and Nikki has Locks and uh, a classic with the works. Uh, Ray mm-hmm. has hot dog and cheese burritos, I think, and Mina has kimbap. Mm-hmm. Um, and each kid kind of gets shamed into bringing sandwiches. So then they're all just eating sandwiches and they're all get bored. And then each one of those kids kind of reconnects to what they love about those lunches and what the memories they have from home making those lunches and they reintroduce them That's back into the wonderful. classroom. But it was important to me as well not to shame the kids saying I didn't want it was very important to me that you don't demonize sandwiches. Right? You don't demonize the white bread and cheese sandwich. That is the, or peanut butter and jelly. That mm-hmm. is the majority of what kids eat mm-hmm. for a, for myriad reasons. So I was very careful in the text as well that it's not that these foods that Preeti, Mina, uh, Nikki and are better are yeah. better. Yeah, yeah. And that this kid should be shamed. That's that's the same problem you have. Yeah. But that shame <laughs> generally. This is a good rule of thumb. Just. <laughs> Should take it easy, easier on ourselves. I want to talk to you about a taster you wrote, and I'll link to this in the show notes. Um, you wrote this great story about Jacques Pepin and the Jacques Pepin omelet, which was yes. uh, has been canonized in food media. And and this is to, to summarize: it's a it's a YouTube clip, or it was originally on his television show of of the perfect omelet, the Jacques Pepin omelet. So I wanted to get your sense. It's been a few years since you wrote that story. What did you learn about this omelet? This very special omelet. I learned the technical aspects of the omelet, but I would say, you know, I've known or come into contact with Jacques Pepin many times, <laughs> and it's rare that you meet someone who is so authentically what they are and have and has such an amazing story. His story, his life story is spectacular, 
and he wears it so lightly, and he's so good at what he does, so effortless. There's no pretense at all. And talking to him, you know, I talked to the technical side of the creating that show, and that was fun, and that's kind of <laughs> like a little bit of that Lockhart Steel idea of like really geeking out on something kind of minute and then you transfer the enthusiasm from you know like I went so deep into this clip right oh yeah we brought this I mean we, we it was our idea in the, our story meeting when we brought it to you we were like let's do this right this moment like exactly let's and, let's and that that mismatch of mm-hmm. the moment with the rigor in which you're um Investigating it, that's fun. To me, that's fun. It's or, you did an yeah. oral history yeah. of a three-minute YouTube clip, and exactly. it, it runs like 2,000 words. But that's yeah. kind of like what we did with Balthazar, to, yeah. just to bring it back. Sure. But really what I learned, or it's not even learned, what I appreciated more and more and more uh, was just that Jacques Pepin is a real one. Yeah. And and just just to bring back a little bit of what you talked about before, Something that I do look for in cookbook projects is are these people that I want to spend two years of my life with and are they, are they real? Yeah. And I've been so for, – the, one of the things that I feel very fortunate about is I don't regret any of the books I work on at all. Where I am right now in my career is I work with amazingly talented very unique people like mm-hmm. Tom yeah. or Mingu or Nikki or or Josh or Joe, who I did the Vino mm-hmm. book with, um, Kwame, obviously. Like I surround myself with they're, – they're very interesting and very accomplished. And I find that as much as I'm telling their story and it's like a professional thing, I learned so much interpersonally from them as well in different areas, in different ways, you know. Um, and that keeps me sustained. You know, I think there's a level of vetting when you get to the point where a book is being accepted by a major publisher, even an independent publisher. There's a vetting that happens naturally that kind of hashes out the real ones in many ways. It's not it's not perfect, but you're often going to, I would say, experience the real ones when writing a cookbook. Yeah, I guess it's debatable. You give me that look. Yeah, I, I, I think cookbooks are powerful. And I think when you when you collaborate with somebody, you and you decide to go on that journey with them, you got to make sure it's 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 a good fit and it's a real experience. I want to make sure it's a good fit. I want to be confident in the book. I want to know that they're, uh, not that any, everyone, not that anyone's infallible, but that they're stand-up people, which is very important to me. And they're entrusting me with their story to some extent. And I also want to learn from them. Like, for for instance... Even working as much as I have with Nikki and Josh, to see how they take, to see how they handle business. You know, I'm a freelancer. I have a brand. It's not Russ and Daughters, mm-hmm. but it's a brand. To see how they make decisions about what they do, what they innovate, and what they hold on to as being core to their identity that they won't compromise on. Or Tom, I am by nature sometimes an anxious person. He, I don't. I, he is not. <laughs> to see him use silence or not divulge when he, you know, like, that's also very interesting. He's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning from that. And I'm learning. And Mingu is, 
you know, I say he's kind of like the Rene Redzepi of Korea, which is true. 100% agree. And he is so passionate uh, and so open and and so, as you know about Korean culture, very cognizant of being respectful and um, kind of the social order to see how he combines deep knowledge, very deep ambition, and also respect has been enormously insightful. I This last question we ask all of our guests, I feel like I, I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time because your answer is, I'm sure, going to be great. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, <laughs> if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of deadline, unlimited time, that means, or burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited budget for this project. Yeah. Joshua, what would that book be? I do have a cookbook currently. It's not a cookbook. I have a book without a deadline right now, and I'm not writing it. So <laughs> I would never if, – if I didn't have a deadline, I wouldn't write a cookbook. Um, I need – I'm someone who thrives on structure and deadlines. Um, in terms of subject matter, you know, I've been writing about restaurants for 20 years. You know, So many wonderful restaurants have – blinkered out of existence. So many wonderful cooks have you know, passed, or, but it's really restaurants that have closed. And those dishes live on in some way, but a lot of them seem lost. I've always wanted to do a cookbook of dead restaurants. Mm. And the feedback I've always gotten is, well, who's the c- constituency? Who's going to buy this book? I don't know. I don't think there is... One, maybe. Also, I don't think we're comfortable with the idea of, you know, impermanence. But I I would love to write about the meals I've had at restaurants that have gone and talk to the people who were there if they're still around. Because I've had, as you've probably had, wonderful meals. And you walk by the place you've had the meal and mm-hmm. now it's a either another restaurant or a Starbucks or not to be cliche about it, but like a chase or, you know, whatever it is. And I I do think that writing about restaurants and and eating out as much as we do over an extended period of time in New York, you really understand both how precious the meal is and how fleeting it is. Fleeting the whole experiences with the restaurant possibly being on life support, even though it looks great. Right. And you walk by a year later and this space, this physical space where you had an amazing meal and, and, and a magical moment with someone, maybe a date, maybe a lover, maybe a stranger, whatever it is, it's now completely gone and no one will – if anyone remembers it at the time, uh, they're, they're very, it's rare and they, no one will remember it in a couple of years. And just to bring it full circle, it's like that has been reinforced – Josh Ozersky, reinforced. Alder. I don't know why yeah. Alder came to mind, but yeah. Wiley Dufresne's place. Yeah. Alder. Gone now. All of these places, so gone. And I look at what I'm Momofuku doing. Momofuku Sambar. Sambar. Jesus. The, it's n- gone. Gone. All gone. It's crazy. And no one will remember. And that's fine. That's how everything is. It does, uh, my, my own work. Books may be a little less so, but of course books the same way. Certainly everything that I wrote online will all be gone. And none of that doesn't impugn the quality of it. And it doesn't mean that it wasn't worthwhile or that it's not worthy and special, but just that it's fleeting. It's not your 
question. But to me, that's, that's been great. the biggest um, biggest learning that has that I've applied to my life from restaurants is just holding on to that dialectic that it's mm. so special. It's not a dialect. They're not opposing. They're the exact same. It's it's so special, these moments, and they're so fleeting. Yeah. Joshua David Stein, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.